Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkie listeners. It's me, Molly, and I just wanted to remind you that Clarissa and I are offering group coaching opportunities on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. Be sure to go to foodjunkiespodcast.com for the link to register. Okay, today, Vera and I interviewed Dr. Callie Estes, an interactive, solution-focused, positive psychologist, and cognitive behavioral therapist. She is a best-selling author and a highly sought-after celebrity coach, counselor, life coach, transformational coach, and wellness guru that blends talk therapy with forward and positive change to assist her clients in unlocking their true potential. She offers a unique service of combining holistic modalities with talk therapy that gets to the root cause of the issues you're experiencing and helps you simply unpause your life. Dr. Estes has over 25 years experience working with clients that want to unpause their life and unpack their backpack to combat issues and behaviors that keep you stuck in life and limit your goals and dreams in both your career and personal life. In today's episode, we talk about the personal and professional journey that Dr. Estes has been on. We talk about harm reduction, client programming, training coaches, the disease model, coaches versus counselors, working with celebrities, what it's like working with Dr. Estes, coaches, sober companions and ethics, dieting and food addiction, meeting clients where they are, aftercare services, what's next for Dr. Estes, and our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Estes. Okay, welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today, along with Molly Painshop. Today, we speak with Dr. Kelly Estes, addiction coach to the stars. Dr. Kelly Estes is a clinical psychologist, addiction counselor, and recovery coach. She is also author of best-selling book called I Married a Junkie, as well as the seven keys to tap into the wealth inside you, how to unpause your life and make success a reality. And she is co-author of the book, the Recovery Coach Workbook. Uh, Kali Estes founded the Addictions Academy, which is an online school for addiction studies, and she has trained professionals such as firefighters, police, and EMTs around addictions. She hosts a popular podcast called Unpause Your Life. She also founded Sober on Demand, a concierge alternative to drug uh, regular drug rehab services for high-profile clients who seek discretion in their recovery. We at Food Junkies are especially interested to hear how Kali works with food addicts who are also celebrities. How are their stories different and the same as ours? How might their recovery look different? Okay, welcome Dr. Kali Estes. Thanks, Vera. I am so glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. We've been talking for a number of years and I'm really glad that I uh, got you on this podcast. So that's great. So we always start with the uh, personal stuff. So can you tell us how you morphed from clinical psychology 
psychology. I think that's where you started and then into addictions work and then into coach work. What was your sort of personal story? So a little bit backwards. I'm a food addict. I identify as a food addict. And in my 20s, I was in college. I was studying psychology. I wanted to be an FBI agent. And I would, (laughs) yeah, I would go out, you know, with with my girlfriends and whatnot. It was Thursday, you know, it's ladies night. We go out and they'd always pick up guys. And I was overweight and kind of dumpy and I never really picked up guys. So I would come home and I was upset. I was depressed. So I would sit and I would eat cake. And the one day my roommate came home and I'm on the floor eating cake with my hands and there's cake on me, cake on the dog, cake on the wall, cake on the floor. And she goes, dude, this isn't normal. And I looked at her and I went, yeah, it is. This is how I grew up. And she goes, this isn't normal. So she sent me to the counselor. So I go to the counselor, you know, in college. And of course, she pulls out the big DSM-5 and says, well, do you throw up? I said, well, not voluntarily. Just kind of happens because it's too much food. And she goes, well, you're not bulimic. Do you restrict food? I'm like, oh, God, no. We don't restrict food at all. So she goes, well, you're not anorexic. So you're not, you don't have an eating disorder. So she sent me to the fat doctor. The fat doctor put me on FenFen. Now I lost all this weight. I'm thin. I love it. But I'm still binging on all kinds of food because I'm a food addict. So I took my first addictions class while I was studying psych and I went, oh my God, those are my people. I understand now why I'm doing what I do. I'm an addict. And that's the first time I realized I don't have an eating disorder. I'm addicted to food. Food is like my coping mechanism. So I started studying it and I started doing addiction work. But back then, food addiction wasn't a thing. You know, it was drug addiction or alcohol addiction or porn addiction. So as I started studying it, I thought, you know, I probably should get some more psychology around this. And I ended up getting my clinical psychologist, my PhD, after I felt like I didn't have enough information because there really wasn't anything in the market for behaviors beyond, you know, drugs and alcohol. So that's how it kind of went. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I don't know how old you are, but I know that years ago there was no, it was all eating disorders or drug addiction, but there wasn't anything in between like you discovered yourself. And I'm guessing that you forged your own way. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because even though you had your clinical psychology, I bet you there still wasn't a food addiction uh, class that you could take or something like that. Exactly. So I'm 48. I turned 48 a couple of days ago and I couldn't figure out you know, what to do? Like, how do how does a food addict get sober? What does that mean? So I went to Overeaters Anonymous going back in the 90s and I didn't fit in there. I'm like, I don't fit in here. I'm not overeating. I'm, I've got a different problem. So the doctor recommended that I go to Narcotics Anonymous. He's like, well, you know, you're taking speed, diet pills, go there. So I went there and of course they have coffee, which is full of sugar, Uh caffeine. And then they have cigarettes, which I loved back then and sugar and sugar and sugar. And I'm like, this is awesome. And all I'm doing is feeding my food addiction. So as I started working in the industry, I said, there has to be something for people like me because where do I go? Where's my group of people? So I started working with my clients that have food addiction like I would a drug problem. And I started researching, you know, sugar. Sugar is almost like heroin. It's almost the same chemical makeup. You physically detox from it. I went through that. So I started treating my clients instead of saying you have an eating disorder, you're addicted to food like they were drug addicts. And I started using the protocols I do for drug addiction and alcohol addiction on my food addict people and it started to work wow. and i went wow this is huge yeah yeah i mean so your your story is very similar to mine you kind of did this on your own applying the information that you learned about addiction studies to food exactly because there was nothing there i've been following you for years with huh. all your medical stuff it's you're you're the pioneer because there well, really there's nothing out there except for you yeah 
well, not I, I'm discovering, not so, but we're not talking to each other. It's, it's only now in this sort of era of podcasts that we're actually discovering these individual silos and that they exist. So, I mean, it, it, this is one of the great things about of late. So anyway, um, would you, you know yourself, Kali, and also you, Molly, that, you know, the, the addiction world of today is primarily harm reduction. And in harm reduction, that spells out in the food addiction world as moderation. So what, where's your take on sugar and uh, like, like basically food addiction in the, in the harm reduction world of addiction studies? So for me, I leave it up to the individual because there are certain things I can eat and certain things I can't. Mm-hmm. So I like to see where the person is. Some people can go, you know, have a piece of cake and it's not a trigger. Some people cannot. And that one piece of cake leans into a whole cake, which leans into a whole pizza. And next thing you know, four weeks later, we're on a binge. So I like to ask them, you know, what are your trigger foods? What are your inflammatory foods? Because food addiction is chemical and emotional. It's not just emotional talk therapy. We need to talk about what's happening inside your body when you consume the Pop-Tart. Because it's not just sugar. It's also preservatives and food coloring and GMOs and all this other stuff. How's your body reacting to it? So what I start with with clients is the first thing they have to give up is sugar in their drinks. It's the only thing I do because I gave up sugar in my coffee first. No sugar at all. Have unsweet tea, unsweet coffee and see how you feel. And then we go from there. So it's step by step by step. And then we'll introduce a piece of cake or we'll introduce a piece of pizza and see what happens. Some of them can handle it. Some of them can't. And if you can't, like I know for me, I can't have Ben and Jerry's in the house. I don't have any sugar in the house. I don't have any white flour bread in the house at all. One piece of white bread, I'll eat the whole loaf. And then I'm going to go buy Ben and Jerry's. That's my trigger food. And a lot of people kind of go, seriously, you eat bread and that ice cream? What? That's what my body craves. So I don't have it here. If it's not here, I'm not going to eat it. So that's the first step is let's remove things and then introduce and see how you do. You may do great. You may fail. If you fail, we know you have to be abstinent from this particular group of foods. Just out of curiosity, have you ever had people who are able to reintroduce a little bit of sugar? Yes, that, that's, that's interesting because I can do some sugar. Like I can go, if it's something I don't like, I can have a little bit. Like if I go somewhere and they're having a birthday cake and it's vanilla or chocolate, I hate chocolate. I'll have a little taste and be like, oh, okay, gross. I don't want it. Totally doesn't bother me. But if they have coconut cake, oh, game on. We're going to eat the whole cake and probably buy two on the way home. Hmm. So I can have some of certain things. Okay, interesting. Molly, do you have that experience too? Yeah, I I think as time has gone on, absolutely. So same idea, Callie, like birthday cake was just never my thing. I'm more of the bread pasta pizza gal anyways, more of the benzo alcohol effect. So that sugar, that straight sugar. Yeah. I mean, I can have a bite or two of it and then I'm like, I'm done. I'm good. I'm fine. But yeah, you give me a slice of, you know, pizza from one of my favorite pizzerias in town and it doesn't stop. Right. It just, now I'm trying to scratch that itch and it's not, it's not happening. So, and we have many clients that experience the same thing, Kelly, Clarissa and I both work front lines with clients as well. And we have clients In fact, I'm working with a gal right now that she knows what her trigger foods are and she can moderate flour and recently spoke with another, you know, professional in the field who told her she was doing it wrong and it caused this whole set of problems. You know, it almost drove her to binge on these things that she was actually moderating and doing just fine on. So it's really interesting how everybody's so individual. So I really appreciate you speaking to that. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, I have to say that I'm, I'm a little bit horrified to hear that, but it's probably because I see people end stage, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with, uh, you know, diabetic complications, et cetera, et cetera. And they're probably end stage where there is no moderation, but I mean, you know, I have to keep my ears open. And if you two say that such a thing exists, I have to you know, appreciate that too. Anyway, thank you, Paul Colley, for that. Okay, so so do you have people that you see just for food addiction? Like, is that part of your program and part of your uh, teaching program as well? Yes, I have people just for food addiction. And I actually created a food addiction certification to train people how to deal with food addiction as an addiction problem and not an eating disorder. So it's a very different concept. So introducing the addiction side of it and how we work with that and what we do different because you have to eat. You know, at the end of the day, you can give up cocaine. You don't need it. You can give up alcohol. You don't need it. You can give up online porn. You don't need it, but you cannot give up eating. You're going to die. So it's something that you're always going to have around you. And a lot of times the, the population, the group that I work with is they're always on a diet for a movie role or they're trying to lose weight for something or gain weight for something. And their body is always in a state of flux. Mm. So instead of being, you know, us, you know, where we know I can't have that, I'm not going to have that. They might be 160 pounds and need to lose 20 pounds for a movie role three weeks from now. So now they're in this restrictive phase, which then causes their insulin to spike. And we've got all kind of chemical things going on. And by the time they finish the role, they're a mess because now they're binging and purging or they're eating and they're taking diet pills. So I get all of that extra stuff in a, you know, addition to the normal stuff of people just trying to get through the day and get through their work week. You know, I, I'm really interested to hear about the specifics of your clientele because that's really you know, why I wanted to speak with you. But before we get to that, can, can you tell a little bit more about your Addiction Academy, which is I'm assuming where that course comes from? And uh, some of your writing. So you, you started with the, uh, I guess it's your Addiction Academy. So who is your clientele and what kind of certificates do you do? What kind of courses? Just tell us a little bit about that. So the Addictions Academy covers everything from an addiction counselor training to every type of addiction you can imagine. We are the largest right now in the world for addiction training. We have 38 classes. We're in 28 countries and five languages. I know you guys are in Canada. We are accredited through the CACCF board. So what the courses offer is an addiction-based study on the coaching side, besides counseling. We have that too. But coaching is a little bit different. So we take people that are life coaches or mental health therapists and possibly, you know, yoga teachers, personal trainers, those yeah. that want to learn more about food addiction because they see it in their population. And we teach them what to do with that when they see it. So the clients come in, they get a copy of the recovery coach. I'm sorry, the students come in, they get a copy of the recovery coach workbook, which has 45 exercises, including a food mood journal, where we can tie, you know, the physical chemical to the emotional. And we teach them how to use it with their clients and how to coach for the underlying cause. So our goal is to teach the student how to work with a client and figure out the why behind the addiction. Why are you using food as a coping mechanism? Why are you, you know, what are you hiding from? We have a trauma coach that goes real well with food coach because we see a lot of people that have trauma in their past and they're using food to cope with that because maybe they think, you know, drugs and alcohol are bad, but eating pizza is not bad. So like I said, we have 38 different classes, everything from sex addiction to drug and alcohol, uh, gambling, hmm. you name it, we have it. 
And do you, do you, do your courses or, or is the theory behind it from a biopsychosocial spiritual stance, you know, like do, do the courses address that kind of gamut or is there a specific, or is it more like the, the disease model or where does that really land? So that's a loaded question. Oh. I'm going to get controversial. Oh, oh no. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear it. So even though I'm a clinical psychologist, I do not like the disease model. I'm anti-disease model because I feel if I tell you, you have a problem that's out of your control and you need to give your will up, you will then use that as a catalyst for not changing. If I tell you, you have a chemical addiction to something that we can break, it's going to be uncomfortable. The detox is going to be uncomfortable. We're going to break that. You have to do the work to get the emotional side down, which may be some trauma work. It may be realizing your coping mechanisms are bad. It may be realizing your choices of people are toxic. If you can do that work, we can come out the other side. So nothing we do is based on disease model. It's based on coaching model. So we do use the ICF uh, core competencies of coaching. Can I ask you then, if you're not using the disease model, does that mean when you come over to the other end that you're cured, that you could actually then moderate or you're no longer a food addict as it were? Because we say uh, that, that you're still an addict, but managing or you're, you're in a latency or it's dormant, but it's still there. So, but do you say, no, it's gone? No, we never say cure. Okay. Uh, no, you're an addict. I identify as an addict. You're an addict. You have a problem, period. Okay. What I look at differently is how you manage the problem. Okay. So if I say you have a disease, what happens with the group that I deal with is they go, oh, see, I have a disease. That's why I am the way I am. Yeah. And they use it kind of as a crutch. Whereas I'll say it's not a disease. It may be chemical. Sure, there may be a predisposition to this. But it can also be a learned behavior. If you learned how to deal with stress by eating cake at four o'clock in the morning, that became a coping mechanism. Anything learned can be unlearned. What if we changed your coping mechanism to working out at 4 a.m.? Okay. Now you're not binge eating. Now you're working out. So I just asked them to reframe it from a whole different perspective. Right. And is that, I was going to ask you, and is that essentially the difference in your mind between a counselor versus a coach? Because I was going to ask you, since you identify with that word coach, what is essentially the difference between a coach and a counselor? And Molly, what are you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm both. I'm both. I think, Callie, I think I heard you say you're both as well. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah, go ahead. Answer. Yeah, if you would answer for yourself. So I started off as a counselor. That's my primary. And here's what I learned. Yeah. Counseling is a very long process. It's a very involved process. It's a lot of saying, well, how did that make you feel? And listening with very little action. And that frustrates me because addicts need action. They need action steps. They need results. So as a therapist, I always felt like, mm. and you got to remember, I'm doing this 27 years. I always felt like I saw the same people and they're not getting better. So about... God, 15 years ago, I started studying life coaching and I started adding some of the competencies of life coaching into what I'm doing. And I started to see my clients change and I thought this is working. So I went and became a life coach and I started using it with my addiction training and I started to see quicker results, which is what I like because it's the here, the now, the present and the future, whereas therapy is the past. You know, what happened when you were a when you drop the ice cream cone and how'd that make you feel? And as an addictions coach, I'm going, wait a minute, you're supposed to get a job. You're supposed to do all these things. I don't want to talk about the ice cream cone. I want to talk about why you haven't gotten a job, why you're still living at mom's house and why you went out and bought vodka and stuck it in your car last week. Yeah. So it's more forward thinking, which I see higher results with. 
Okay. Yeah. Or I guess more here now. Molly, do you have well, just Yeah. I mean, and I would agree. I, I mean, I'm a bit behind. I mean, I'm the baby, so to speak, in the in the room today. Um, I've only been in the field since 2005. So like 17 years roughly. But I would say the same is that I'm not a baby. It was, it was really, it was really <laughs> hard to hear, like you said, the same client over and over again. They're not getting better. And and I'm with you, coaching is a more forward moving process. You don't have to talk about what happened when you were eight. You don't have to get down into the muck. You can stay very solution focused. And recently there was research that just came out that showed that working with a skilled coach can be just as effective as a therapist. So, I mean, I, I'm, I I'm with you. I saw that. And yeah. therapists are all beside themselves, which always makes me laugh because they always think they're so, I studied for all these years and do all this work and I'm just so against coaching. And I'm like, really? You're not making any money. That's part of the problem why you're so angry. So yeah. true. You're in a ton of debt because you have to yeah. have all these degrees to get all the, and all these hours to get licensed. And yeah, so uh, I guess I'm curious about the program as far as like, so it's in these 20, you said 28 classes, 28 classes, 28 countries. We have. 38 classes to choose from. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how many classes do you need to take then to have the certification, like to be complete with your program? So each one is different. So if you just want to come in and just do sex addiction, we have a sex addiction program for Mm -hmm. just that. If you want to come in and do just gambling, we have that. But most people start with recovery coaching, which is the drug and alcohol piece. And they come in and they do level one and level two. Level two is the DSM. We do teach it. So they understand, you know, what is bipolar? What is schizophrenia? What is borderline? What does it look like? So that's the recovery coach. Most of them will do that as a foundation and then build on that. So we have a nutritional coach. We have a neuro health coach, which is the brain. Goodness, we have so many of them. And then we have specialties for counselors. So if they want to learn opiate use disorder or ACE, adult childhood experience, we have that. We have the trauma coach. It just depends on what they want to study. And then we kind of recommend what to bundle together to get where they want to go. That's amazing to so, know. Do you have a list? Do you keep a running list of certified professionals? So like I, we could direct listeners to a website that says these are the people to contact who are certified in food addiction. So we do. We have people that have taken the program. We also have a, a directory that they can join if they so choose. They do get a directory listing with us. Some of them choose to do it. Some of them do not. So I can give you that and they can go there and take a look or they can contact us and say, this is what I'm looking for because everybody's background is different in terms of food coaching. Uh, so you'll see some people that only do moderation. You'll see some that only do abstinence. You'll see uh-huh. some that do both. So yeah, if they contact us and say, this is what I'm looking for. We'll be able to shoot them over some information on those specific coaches. That's amazing. Thank you. I'm always looking for resources. So I appreciate that. Go ahead, Vera. Yeah. So now I want to know about the celebrity piece. So uh, first of all, well, maybe I don't know which came first. So you you uh, you mentioned a couple of times, and certainly in your literature, that you are basically a celebrity recovery coach. And uh, first of all, how did you get in that business? Is it just where you live, or how did you get in that? <laughs> Everybody asked me that. So yeah. okay. So my husband is a drummer in a rock band, ah. and I've always been around musicians fairly in and out. You know, Nikki Six is a friend of mine from Motley Crue, that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of well known in that circuit, you know, as a spouse. So when we wrote the book, I Married a Junkie, everybody started reading it in the celebrity. I shouldn't say everybody. Some people in the celebrity were reading it and they started passing it around, which then put my hat in the ring. And then I got a phone call and I got a phone call from one of the most prominent writers. And I went out to L.A. and I spent two weeks with her and got her sober off alcohol. And no one had been able to do that. 
ever. And they were shocked. Like, how did you do this? Just did my coaching, did my thing. I mean, I'm in her space every day for five hours. And that developed my sober on demand program. And my name just kind of get passed around and passed around. And I started doing it. I was doing it on tour buses. I got hired by the NBA uh, to work with their professionals. I was doing some work with the NFL. Same exact thing where I come in and work with them intensive wherever they are. And I can bring the whole team in. I can bring in the doctor, the nurses, therapists, sober companion. And I do a deep dive with them about five hours a day for three to five days. Ah. Get to the root cause of it. We start solving it. We create a plan. So it's very different. And I think that's what people liked because instead of going to an inpatient facility for 30 days, I'm bringing everything to them and it's fast and furious and just for them. They're not going to groups. They're not going to meetings. It's just all about them. And in the celebrity world, they love when it's all about them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you do interventions as well? I have. Now I have staff that do that. That's my least favorite piece of this. Right. Just because it's, I feel like I bat my head against the wall. You know, it's like parenting or hurting cats, but we do have them. Okay. So, so this, this idea of you bringing the services to them, can you give an idea of uh, like, what's a day in the life of, so you have five days of this intensive deep dive, five hour stint, right? With somebody. So yeah. like, what's a day in the life of a recovery coach? So what I do is they'll wake up, they'll have their sober companion there who spent the night. They'll make breakfast. They'll have nope. Okay. Yep. That's um. So same sex person. They will make coffee, have breakfast. Usually the sober companion will prepare the meal unless they have a chef, and then you know get caffeinated because I come in and then we start. And I start with you know the history, the background, the use, what their plan is, what they're trying to do, and then we work on uncovering like the root cause. Why are we here? How do we get here? How do we fix here? What are the issues? And then we have yoga teachers, we have meditation teachers, acupuncture, massage, uh, qigong, anything you can think of they want, we can bring in. So once I'm done, they'll have all those specialties. And then usually they crash by seven o'clock because they're spent after a day of us. And then day two is kind of the same thing. Where we're working on those specific issues, whatever they are. And every client's different. And I could give you an example. I was working okay. with a client who was completely stuck and it wasn't even her, it was her job. And it was just a matter of why are you in this industry? And she just looked at me and goes, I don't know, I hate what I do. Mm. Let's figure it out. And next thing you know, we're on a career path doing the Myers-Briggs personality test, looking at what she could do with the rest of her life. And she started a business and she had me laughing because it's like some little baby yoga clothing business that just skyrocketed out of nowhere. So we do a lot of mindset and intent and law of attraction stuff from that point on. So it's kind of an eclectic, different thing, but I seem to get results with it. So Kelly, when you're doing that, do you get them off sugar as well, whether they've asked for it or not? Absolutely. That's part of what I come with. They hate it. If they're hiring me, we're kicking sugar and white flour. And they usually look at me sideways. They're like, I'm kicking meth. I'm not kicking them. Like, we're going to do it all at the same time. Trust Ah. me. Let's do it now. Really? So if they're if they're there because they've got a problem with meth or with uh, cocaine, you'll say, look, we're also doing the sugar. Absolutely, because it's a trigger. Yeah. It's pinging well, your brain the same way. So let's get rid of that because it's going to lead right down to meth again. Yeah. Let's get rid of it. Okay. So then basically, if I were a celebrity, I'd have a sober coach with me the whole time. Then I'd have Kali come in for one or two hours to do an intensive talk. And then I'd have yoga person coming in. Uh, so basically... All of the services I get in a treatment center, but all 
for me at my at my location. Exactly. And then you have the sober companion that's there 24-7. And I'm there about five hours a day. And then if you have, like sometimes our clients will have mental health. They might be bipolar or borderline. Yeah. We'll bring in a licensed therapist for that portion of it. I just do the addiction. I tell everybody, I don't do the crazy town stuff. You want, you want crazy town? We're going to bring in a licensed therapist for all of that because that's all out of my wheelhouse. And they yeah. laugh at me because they're like, well, aren't you a psychologist? Yeah, but I don't like that portion of it. So I'll bring somebody in that loves that stuff. Right. So I, I, uh, that sounds pretty expensive. Like, like a treatment center is already pretty pricey. But now if I'm getting everything a treatment center offers me to my door, that's pretty pricey. But I guess they've got the money. See, my theory on price is this. People will spend the money on the things that are important to them. They'll buy a brand new $2,000 iPhone. They'll buy a $5,000 sofa and an $80,000 car. If your health and your mental health and your well-being are important to you, you will spend money in that area as well because you are not good to anybody if you can't function at 100%. All right. All right. So what are some, uh, I mean, if we're talking about a celebrity, there's lots of obstacles. It's not just being a discreet, like what else are you having to deal with that's different than regular? (laughs) Okay. So imagine I'm coming to your house. We're going to work on this. And you've got the house cleaners there. You've got your personal assistant there. You've got somebody preparing your meals. You've got your personal trainer showing up. Your yoga teacher's there. Your Pilates teacher's there. Your hair and makeup is there. Camera crews are coming in and out. That's sort of the setting that I walk into. And you're running the show because these people are on your payroll. So all you have to say is, I need a Xanax. All you have to say. And one of those Mm. 10 servants that you have running around will provide you with whatever drug you need. So when I come in, the first thing I do is corral your staff and say, I'm now in charge. So this is what's going to happen. There'll be no drugs delivered. There'll be no ice cream at three o'clock in the morning, Ben and Jerry's, what have you. Everything goes through me. So I take over that role. So the first dynamic that happens is now you're mad at me because I just took away everything you get. And you look at me like, well, this isn't going to work. So we kind of have a dynamic in the beginning of, you know, who's in charge. That starts the process because the celebrity client has so many yes people. And this is how Prince died. And this is how Whitney Houston died. People are bringing them whatever they ask for, whenever they want, not understanding the ramifications of what they're giving them. So I put a stop to that. And I become that buffer between you and your staff, because the staff will do what you tell them because they're on payroll. They don't want to get fired. Mm. I don't care what you tell me. I'm already paid. I'm paid in advance. So you could fire me from tomorrow. I'm already paid. I'm not going anywhere. And usually with the celebrities, the uh, Actors Screen Guild will hire me, the agent will hire me, or the movie crew will hire me. Right. Because the person showing up inebriated or, you know, out of character or acting odd on set to their money and their livelihood depends on the sobriety. So I'm coming in whether they want me or not. And And I've had, and if they don't want you, what do you do? Things like this happen. We'll be in their trailer and they'll be having a meltdown and throwing things at me and calling me names, the C word, the B word, the F word, what have you. And I just sit there and wait till they're done their temper tantrum and just say simply, whenever you're done having your five-year-old temper tantrum, we'll talk. And they don't like that. But they do it. They have their meltdown. And then they sit down and they're exhausted and they're crying and they're mad. And they act like a five-year-old. And they cross their arms and they say, what do I have to do to get out of this? Perfect. Let's get started. And then we start whether they want to or not. And usually within two hours, they're invested now because they see what's going to happen, what's at stake. 
and the outcome. They cannot live like this. Like this, some of the some of the stuff these celebrities do is so unhealthy and it's consistently unhealthy to the point where I see, I don't know how you're functioning between the drugs and the food and the women. And it's just, it's crazy. So I try to break that down for them because really, you know, for the men, sometimes they're seen as, oh, you know, they're exciting. Like Charlie Sheen really embodied his role in Two and a Half Men. He really is like that. You know, he's into women, he's into drugs. That's him. Yeah. And for women though, in that industry, you can't do that. It's a double standard. So you will lose roles for being excessively drunk or excessively high or acting out on stage. So they have more to lose than than the men do. You know, you know, one of the people that I often think about in this context is Michael Jackson. So he had a doctor who actually came to his house and like his own private doctor who obviously failed in that fatal night. But, you know, he would have said, I, I would imagine I need this stuff because I cannot sleep. What would you do there? Like they can't do their job without or at least that's their rationale. So there are so many other drugs that we could have given him besides propofol. And I would have stepped in and would have said, we're not injecting somebody with a surgery drug. That's what that's for. Let's start with something light, an Ambien, a Percocet. And let's talk about why he can't sleep. There's got to be an underlying cause. What's the problem? Is it stress? Is it food? You know, what's the what's the problem? And let's solve the problem. The problem there, though, with his doctor is his doctor's on payroll. He's paid very well and he doesn't want to say no. And, you know, I come in, I have no problem saying no. I'm they hire me because I'm like a hammer. I come in and I'm kind of known as a badass. I come in and I don't care what you have to say. I don't care what you call me, throw at me, doesn't matter. We're going to do this. And you're going to kick and scream for the first day and cry. I had one client at the Beverly Wilshire, if you can imagine this, we're in Rodeo Drive. He rents out the entire floor of the Beverly Wilshire, every single room. And they run like 1200 bucks a night back then. That's like five years ago, purely so he could walk around in his underwear and smoke weed. And I said, what are we doing? And he's like, I just want to walk around and smoke weed. And they let him do it. I mean, that's the big bill. So I come in, I'm like, we're not going to walk around in our underwear and we're not going to smoke weed. And he goes, well, you can't stop me. Watch this. I took all the drugs and threw them out. And he's like, you can't do that. I just did it. And he just looks at me and he's like, well, you can't do that. I'm like, I did it. And he said, you're fired. I'm like, you can't fire me. You didn't hire me. Your trust fund hired me because you're hemorrhaging money. And I'm stuck here for the next 15 days, whether you like me or not. So that's how we started. And he ended up face down in the middle of the floor and the the hotel hallway, having a temper tantrum like a five-year-old, pounding his fists on the ground, screaming, crying, carrying on. And I just stepped over him and sat there and waited for him to go through his process and pay attention. So that's common in the celebrity world because they're used to being told yes. And when they're told no, I may be the first person that tells you no. We're not doing that. Have you ever been in a situation where you've decided to just walk off because it was just too abusive on your end? No, I, I laugh at them. My specialty <laughs> is narcissistic men. So I, <laughs> I tell them, listen, my father called me every name in the book. That's my trauma. You can call me anything you want. Trust me, you're not going to phase me. And they hate that because it really doesn't phase me. I'm like, eh, go ahead. And they run the gamut. I had one call me the C word. I don't know if I curse on here, but he called me the C word mm-hmm. in the very beginning. And I looked at him and I said, wow, where are we going to go from there? Like you didn't, you know, work up to that. You just went there. I said, this is going to get interesting. And I sat down and I said, I can't imagine what you could do next. I'm like, I'm waiting. Go ahead. And it didn't have, you know, he expected me to get upset. And he looked at me and he's like, that doesn't bother you. I'm like, oh, honey, no, that doesn't phase me. Doesn't phase me at all. 
And he stood there and he goes, okay. And then he called me the B word. And I'm like, okay, I'll own that. Sure. I got no problem with that. What else you got? And he looks at me and he crosses his arms and he stops his foot. and He goes, I hate you like a five-year-old. And I'm like, oh, look, a five-year-old temper tantrum. Go ahead, I'll wait. And he hated it, but I got him where I needed to be because he realized there's nothing he could do to offend me. Like, really? I could care less what you have to say. So I get those cases. Nobody else wants to deal with them because they are rude and, you know, they, they can be rough. But I get motion out of them because I have to parent and I come in and I parent for the first day. Uh-huh. Well, you know, when you speak about narcissistic men, I think about uh, a couple of years ago, I'm, I live in Toronto, Canada. We had a mayor, well, it's more than a couple of years ago, I guess four to six years ago, Rob Ford. And Rob Ford was became well known in the um, Western world as the crack smoking mayor. I don't know if you heard of him on your end, but he was like uh, found smoking crack, like with a video. And there he is being the mayor making decisions about money and about drug addiction policy and whatnot. And he had a recovery coach. And uh, that recovery coach, I don't know, I don't think he had your uh, love of narcissistic men because he just basically followed this guy. But was Rob Ford was still able to smoke crack even in the hospital. He ended up in the hospital a few times and still managed to get out and behave in that way. So I don't know. I know that recovery coach very well. Oh, do you? And I do. He doesn't work for us. We were not hired for that gig. But the recovery coach called me and asked me what he was doing wrong. And Ah. I said, let me get my pen out because it's pretty much everything. Oh, wow. As a a coach. Because I I agree to live through that as as a member. Yeah. Well, the first thing is, as a coach, you should never see me. I won't be on camera. You won't see me anywhere with the client. So if you Google me and clients, you'll never know who I worked with because the first thing I say is you should not see me. I am to be heard and not seen. So he made a statement by being in the videos and by being on the camera and being in the photos. He should never have done that. Like the anonymity was lost, right? Exactly. And then that also creates an imbalance of power because I'm supposed to be the professional. I'm supposed to be guiding you. You cannot fame seat with clients. And that's a big thing that sober companions and coaches do wrong. What, what does they, that mean? Sorry? Uh, fame seat. They get excited. They're oh, around. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, they're around the celebrity and they post it and they video it and they tag yeah. themselves. And that's you can't do. Yeah. That hint that hurts your client. Yeah. And that's the first thing. So there's no, you know, your client should look up to you and want the sobriety that you have. If you're doing the things your client's doing, you know, you're no better than your client. So that was a bad match. I'm going to bring another one up to you, Demi Lovato and her sober companion. She ended up sleeping with her sober companion. (laughs) That is another no-no. We do not get in bed with our clients. So (laughs) this industry, like the ethics and the understanding of how to do it is kind of in the background of what we should be doing. Wow. Interesting. Have you ever been a recovery? What what fascinating stories. Have you ever been a recovery coach for a food addict? Yes. Ah, boy, I guess you can't tell me who it was, but what was it like? What was it like? (laughs) Female actress. I wanted to pull my hair out. They're very intense because it was three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) She woke me up and wanted to go for a ride down Sunset Strip, which is fun. Let's go. So we go for a ride down Sunset Strip and she wanted to go through In-N-Out Burger. She wanted to go through McDonald's and get ice cream and all this other stuff. And it was just hours upon hours of decompensating with her. So the sun comes up and I'm like, I took her to the beach. We're sitting on the pier. And I'm like, we're not eating. We're going to go sit on the pier. And everything was about how nobody, how everybody else can do this but me. 
you know, everybody can just have a burger. I have to have 10. Everybody can have this. Everybody can have that. So it's that also that woe is me concept. So I had to unravel all that for her because she really had to be in abstinence because one burger was 10 burgers. Burger uh, Burgers were her thing. Hmm. So eventually I broke it down and I said, well, you can't eat chemically. You can't eat beef and the bun together. That's the problem. If you eat just the beef, you're not going to have the same chemical reaction. So I got her to the point where she would eat just a slab of beef, as disgusting as that sounds. That's what she was doing. And she wasn't craving, you know, 10 of them. She'd do two. So we kind of had to do harm reduction to get her down to, I probably shouldn't eat beef. Now she's vegan. But it was like this process with her and extremely emotional and, you know, woe is me and whatnot. But again, in the celebrity market, so many of these people are yo-yo dieting to yeah. get these roles. And they're they're on keto and they're on the South Beach diet. And I don't know what your take on diets is, but I hate dieting yeah, I for a food addict. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, so what do you think about Oprah? <laughs> Oprah and her uh, whole history. I mean, she's a, she's a classic celebrity food addict. I'm going to be a little controversial. She's one of the people that kind of goes with what's ever in for yep. attention. So she had a cocaine problem when that was popular. She was yep. a victim of domestic violence when that was popular. She was sexually abused when that was popular. And now uh-huh. she's into, you know, a food addict because that's popular. So I question, you know, as a professional, how much of that is real mm-hmm. and how much of that is for the public eye? Interesting. I never thought about that. I mean, I just watch her weight yo-yo and her constant yeah. talking about Weight Watchers or it's I don't know if she's ever done keto, but that same idea of uh, multiple weights. But you're saying there's something beyond that even. Yeah, I, th- I think so, because I've watched so many, so many, I guess a, a better, I was trying to think of a better celebrity that I haven't worked with because I can't legally. Well, you know, there's a c- celebrity, Stephen Fry in, in the in the UK, who has out, out and out said that he uh, is a food addict. I mean, he's not a recovered food addict, but he's a food addict, you know. That's helpful. Yeah. There was another one too. He died. He was a comedian. He was the comedian that used to say, I say nay, nay. And he was talking about eating buffet. I can't think of his name, but he came out as a food addict. He was like 300 pounds and he lost all this weight. And then he ended up dying of a heart attack after he got thin. But he was talking about how, you know, that's all he would do. He would go on stage and be a comedian. He'd get booed off stage and then he would just eat because he was so depressed. So then he decided to make his entire comedian stand-up routine on food. So his entire thing is on eating. It's Uh, funny, but it's also sad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I I do know of one one celebrity that's a well-known food addict in recovery, Judy Collins. So she she uh, talks about her uh, base. First of all, alcohol addiction, which turned to food addiction. And then she found recovery in the 12 step programs and now speaks quite openly about that. But which actually leads me to another thought. So if you're focusing so intently on their you're providing services to their home, then essentially, I guess because of discretion, they're not able to do support meetings, like peer support meetings. So they can. aren't they losing out there? No, they can go. The Sober Companion will take them if they choose to go. Absolutely. And we go incognito. So they go as a friend or a life coach. I mean, usually if you see me, I'm in yoga clothes, toting a yoga mat. I come in as the quote unquote yoga instructor. So mm-hmm. yeah, we meet the client where they are. So if they want to do meetings, we do it. They want to do harm reduction, we'll try it. They want to do total abstinence, we do it. We meet them right where they are. And then, you know, the goal, of course, is sobriety or leaving, you know, those specific foods behind and being able to have a functioning lifestyle. 
Sometimes we get there, sometimes we don't, depending on the toxic environment that they're in. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you have a spouse who's eating fast food and ordering pizza and you're trying to get off white flour, it's not going to work. If that's around you all the time, you're eventually going to say, F it, I'm going to eat that pizza. I'm going to hang out at Molly's house. We're going to have pizza. We're going to have pasta. We're going to have bread. We're going to have Alfredo. And that's it. I'm done. Because why not? You know? Yeah. What happens after the 15 days? Are there aftercare services or do you, do you hook them up with, with continued services post like yes. that? Okay. Yeah. Yep. So sometimes they'll keep the companion. We've had companions stay as long as two years, depending on the individual. They can keep them as long as they want. There are, when we first part, it'll be daily check-ins with me. So they're keeping their food mood journal. They're texting. We have a whole bunch of different texting things that they do. They tell us where their mindset is, where their food levels are, how they're feeling. They get sessions with the sober coach. They get sessions with me. So we just keep doing that. And we eventually step them down till it's follow-up, you know, once, once a month check-in, once every other month check-in. And we're making sure they're staying on their program. And if something goes wrong, we're available. That's, that's so good to hear because I think we have a lot of programs popping up where they're detox only and then there's no aftercare services. And that's kind of what myself and Clarissa really, she's our other co-host of the podcast, but uh, that's really the part that we typically specialize in. And so it's can be really hard though when people don't offer that and they've built this relationship with this person who's walking them through the detox or whatever it might be. And they don't have these further, you know, these ongoing services. So it's really great to hear that you do that. I wanted to switch the conversation just a bit because I know we're running out of time and and being such a, a bright light in the profession, I w- was really wondering, you know, what is it that you see? What do you think is getting in the way? If, if you even, if this is even on your radar, we are, uh, Clarissa and I are on a team trying to get uh, the World Health Organization to recognize food addiction or some label of that kind uh, recognized. And there's another team that we are partnering with that's working toward the BSM. You know, is that something that's important to you at all as a professional in this field? And if so, what do you think is standing in our way of that coming to be? I would love to see it in the DSM. The problem with the DSM is they keep changing everything. Like they changed, you know, we used to have different ways to diagnose and now everything is SUD, you know, substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. And the biggest pushback is you have therapists trying to take the stigma out of everything. Let's call it substance use disorder instead of addiction. Because addiction is a bad word. Well, it's food addiction. Well, we're trying to get away from that. So there's this, you know, battle Whereas those of us that are going through it, we're like, hey, I'm a food addict. Hey, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, I'm a drug addict. We identify as that term, but you have these, I don't want to say do good therapists, but these therapists that aren't addicts, for lack of a better term, trying to change everything. So we're always butting heads with them, I feel like, when we want to make any kind of change because they want everything to be warm and fuzzy. And the back, you know, the bottom line is it's not warm and fuzzy. Food addiction is ugly. You know, drug addiction is ugly. Alcoholism is ugly. And they don't want to address that. I think if we could get past that, we could get it in there and say, this is a real thing. We need to address this as a real thing. And we need to start in childhood because a lot of this stuff starts in childhood. It starts with trauma. Mine started with my mother. You know, every time she was stressed, she'd wake me up, bring me down and we'd eat cake. I was four, you know, four years old and I'm eating cake at four o'clock in the morning thinking this is the coolest thing in the world. Had no idea this is no good. And it just morphs from there. So if we could address it, we could curtail it as it's happening and we could have better resources. Absolutely. And I just, uh, ASAM just 
sent me their newsletter a few days ago and there's a team that's, you know, they're really researching this idea of pre-addiction, right? Like being able to prevent or identify this pre-disease time period, much like we look at pre-diabetes and really get in there and try to prevent it from going from, from developing further. And that's exactly what you're just speaking to. And yeah, absolutely. I'm right on board with you, Kelly. Like I, (laughs) I knew very little about you other than the Academy coming into this, this call, but, or this interview, but I think that, you know, you're out there on the West coast and you're seeing these celebrities and you're working with some pretty difficult cases. And I just appreciate the work that you're doing because this disease is non-discriminatory, right? It doesn't matter if you're rich and famous, or if you're poor and living under a bridge somewhere, it doesn't matter if you come from the best background or the the worst background. All you know, none of us are immune. It's all we're all I don't know. I guess we're all exposed and and capable of developing something along these lines. So I appreciate that. Uh, Vera, did you have another yeah. question? Well, yeah. yeah, I want I'm 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 part of the fame struck crowd, so I want to get back to a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> You've been very successful in breaking in the into the mainstream press, you know, like the Washington Post and Dr. Drew show and, and whatnot. So I'm assuming part of that is because you're working with the rich and famous, you know, so, so you get to speak to that. But have you found that uh, those uh, that there's been a receptivity because, you know, you you like Molly is saying, not only are you working with hardcore, unique people like the narcissists, you know, in the crowd, but you're also working in, in a and probably known to be addiction focused a lot of addicts as well, but you're also, you know, speaking to the press that normally don't listen to us, but they're listening to you. So what's the magic sauce that you are able to do? I mean, and I appreciate that your ability to do that. So it's not a magic sauce. It actually happened backwards. I ended up having a competitor that's a hater that drug me through the mud. So I went up against that and said some other things in the press, which got attention of the press because it was controversial. And then when I did my book, I Married a Junkie, that's what put me on TV because people said, wait a minute, what's the story? So, you know, a clinical psychologist, his husband is doing heroin while she's building her celebrity company, getting celebrity sober, and he's spending the money, you know, crashing cars and pawning things and stealing things and getting arrested. So that kind of made the media go, ooh, dirt, let's put her on. Huh. That broke me into NBC, KTLA. And then my work with the NBA broke me into CNN. So working for the NBA put me on CNN. And then once you do that, you kind of get, you know, sort of known as like an, I don't want to say an expert, but that's sort of what they call you. And then, you know, you get asked for quotes. Forbes wanted a quote, the Post wanted a quote, that kind of stuff. And I will say this, I know it's it's cool to have, but it really doesn't translate into clients. It's more like, look, I've been on Forbes, woohoo, you know, but Uh it doesn't. It doesn't do that. It gives you authority in the space, which is what I wanted. Because my hater was like, oh, you know, she's not, she's not, she has no authority in the space. She's not been on TV like I have. And she's not on this show and that show. I'm, seriously. So then when I did it, I was like, okay, here you go. And that kind of made him quiet. That's really the only reason I did it was to shut him up. But then it, you know, it anchors me and people say, okay, you've been on this stuff. You must be, must kind of know what you're talking about. Okay, good. Now, so um, I, I did just, just sort of to close this part off. Do you, do you feel that can you, without being specific about anybody, give us a success a success story and what the biggest obstacle is that you're dealing with on a day to day around food addiction? Sure. Uh, the biggest obstacle is people being able to stick with the tools they're given. 
So when I leave somebody with a toolbox of tools, I tell them you have two options now. You can open up that toolbox and build the house, or you can sit down on your ass and prop your feet on the toolbox and complain that the house isn't getting built. I'm not going to build the house for you. I want you to build the house. And if during that process, something falls apart, you can call me and I'll help you rebuild the house. But that's sort of what I leave people with. And giving a success story, one of my very first celebrities that I worked with, 1980s band, put it that way, made their comeback, making a ton of money touring. One of their players is a heroin addict, has been a heroin addict forever. And I got called to go on tour to get him sober. And this is somebody everyone said, this guy's never going to get sober. He's going to die with a needle. And I went on and I got him sober and everyone was shocked on how I did it. And I know you asked for food addiction. It's no different than food addiction. And I'm going to tell you why. Whatever their addiction is, they have to make peace with letting it go. And that's where it starts. Whether it's heroin or opiates or women or food, you have to stop and say, this is not helping me. This is not for my higher good. Once they do that, and they get in that mind frame of this is the direction I'm going, you can guide them that direction. And a lot of people don't want to go that direction because it's a lot of work. But once they get down there, they can do it. So to speak to your food addiction one, I had an actress who was losing weight for a role who was dangerously thin, like I'm ready for hospitalization thin. And I told her, you're going to hate me, but I need you to call and cancel the role. This is going to kill you. She did. And she actually gained some weight and got another role you know, healthy weight based upon that role. And then based upon that role, got another role and then got a couple of awards for her show. So there are success stories, but you have to want to put in the work as a client and you have to, you know, if you fall down, get up and get back in the boat and row. Right. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Those are amazing words. I love it. Get in the boat and row. Okay. So just a couple more questions, Kelly. We really want to respect and honor your time. What are your next, what's up next for you? Are, do you have another book in the works? Are you just growing your academy? What should we expect next from you? So we have a second book coming out. Actually, you know, I've written three, but we have a, I married a junkie, the aftermath. What happened oh, after? Because oh. everyone is asking us what happened. Huh. So there's more to the story. So we're going to put that book out next. And from there, I've been just growing sober on demand. We're actually franchising it into different cities at this time. Wow. it's amazing. Okay. Well, then we have a signature question and then we'll let you go. So what if you could tell a younger version something of yourself, a younger version of yourself, something about food addiction, what would it be? Ooh, a younger version about food addiction. I would probably tell myself that you don't need the cake. It doesn't love you as much as you think it does. <laughs> I like it. That's great. Short and sweet to the point. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here, Callie. We so appreciate it you t- giving us your time. Yeah. Thank Kelly, you for thank- having me. Yeah. Very interesting. I really, I'm really glad we were able to speak. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on food junkies recovery from food addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, sugar free for life support group. I'm sweet enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. 
Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>